John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 987.ru0310, certificate number 52488, The Princeton Incident. Princident. The Princeton Incident. My family was in... New York a couple weeks ago for spring break. Famous we, spring break location. Woo! You went to the beaches in New York. New <laughs> we were <York>. in Midtown. <laughs> it's pretty typical uh, Jennings trip to Manhattan. We saw a few shows. We ate some pastrami. Do you go to like big Broadway productions of the Phantom of the Opera and stuff? Or do you go to like black box shows where somebody screams about their childhood? Yeah, I just like to see... Um, Maybe people splashing paint on nude bodies. Yeah. So we go to a lot of that. But it, but but it's a musical, <laughs> and it's Wicked. Weirdly, <laughs> a version of Wicked. We generally we're generally a little musical averse. I mean, at least me and Mindy. Mm-hmm. You know, our our theater kid less so. But in this case, we ended up seeing a lot of musicals years ago, like before the pandemic, when they announced that. Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster were going to do the Music Man. I thought to myself, "I love what the- a nightmare." <laughs> <laughs> I thought to myself, "Keep me no." I love the Music Man, and these are the two great American Hugh Jackman so- song and dance performers of their generation. Hugh Jackman, not an American. Oh, you're, that's true. The two greatest Australian or American song and dance people of our time. Uh huh. Yeah, I really, I really love his singing and dancing. Uh, have you ever seen him? He's great. Is he? I don't love his voice, honestly. I don't love his voice. Um, what are the other musicals he's done that I might have seen him in? Boy from Oz was his big Broadway thing. He did some kind of review of who was the composer. No, I can't remember. He sings in Lame Is the movie. He sings in The Greatest Showman. He sings in movies sometimes. He's uh, he's a he's an old timey tap dancey guy. I see. You just think that he's Wolverine. And then right around the same time, they announced that they were going to bring over this West End reimagining of Stephen Sondheim's company with a gender swap. Right on. It's a, it's a 70s thing about a commitment-phobic guy in his 30s. And now it's, it's a lot more interesting and relevant if it's like a commitment-phobic woman in When her are 30s. they going to do the odd couple, but 
Gender swapped? Gender swapped. They already have. Oh, where was I? Not the, going to any Broadway shows. The Odd Couple has been gender swapped as early as the 70s, okay. I want to say. Okay. I can't remember who first played it. Cagney and Lacey. Yeah, it was Tyne Daly and Sharon Glass for 100% <laughs> sure. Who's the messy one? Sharon Glass, right? Yeah, yeah. Cagney's sure. the messy one? Yeah. Um, and I thought to myself, hey, if those two are ever in New York at the same time, we should go see both. And it took three years because of the pandemic, but those were both showing the spring and you went to both and the kids were off school we went to both we saw the new tracy let's play i've only been to one broadway show in, in your life. entire life i'm gonna guess it was cats no it was it a musical it was the phantom of the opera uh. i was in new york i was dating <laughs> a, a gal that grew up going to Broadway musicals, it was what her family did. They went to all of them, and they went to all were, of them multiple times. Were they Manhattanites, or did they come in from Westchester to see to see the new Neil Simon? No, they lived in uh, in Holland and then in Belgium, they were and f- then in Paris. They would fly places. across the ocean to see musicals. They would fly across the ocean to see musicals because that was what they loved, and they saw musicals, like every musical. She's seen cats eight times. I think that they were crazy. Uh, If you're rich, you can be crazy. Rich and crazy. And so she couldn't believe I'd never seen a musical. And we were in New York on a separate cover. And she said, well, let's just go over and see the Phantom of the Opera. And I went. That's not the way to convert you. And it was terrible. (laughs) I couldn't believe how terrible it was. Although it had one memorable song. But I just couldn't, and then I and then I walked out of the theater. You know, walking in, I was like, "Here it is, Broadway. It's, I'm this is it. It's got a chandelier that falls. I'm gonna see what it's all about. I'm finally gonna see what it's all about." And I came out and I looked around at all the other theaters showing all those other shows, and I was like, "Is it all as bad as this? Oh, this is really bad." I hope you didn't add, tell that to Sonia or whatever her name. No, is. I said, "Wow, that was amazing," and she was like, "Well." You kind of had to be a kid. I'm like, I don't know. I didn't see any kids in there. These are all grownups that go to this. Did you go see the Book of Mormon? I've seen Book of Mormon. Is it good? It's very funny. I mean, it's it's not in the songs are incredibly catchy. I love those Robert Lopez songs. I mean, it's in very bad taste. Yeah. If you're if you're African, you're not going to like it. Oh. Really Africans come off worse than Mormons, oh. honestly. Did you see Springtime for Hitler? What was that? That No, that movie was, that play was called something else. The Producers. The Producers. Did you see it? I have not seen The Producers. Oh, that seems like a thing you would have seen. Uh, yeah, a lot of those things that ran forever in the in the 90s to early 2000s, I did not see. Rent? Not see. I've only been going to, I mean, I've uh, how, reg, how recently have I been going to New York regularly? Only like yeah. 15 years top. Did you see Rent? No. Uh, have you ever seen Moomin Chants? I saw Moomin Shots on um, <laughs> on the Muppet on Show. The Muppet Show. Does that count? No. Did you? I see, saw Rent on the Muppet Show too. Did you see the Blue Man Group? Have <laughs> you seen any of this stuff? I have a. I, you, you can go to actual theater. You don't just have to go to whatever has the most ads in the subway oh, or, or on that on that channel in your hotel room. Look, I've been to lots of plays. Don't get me wrong. It's just nobody sang. Uh, I I would pref- generally we don't go to as many musicals as but this time we went to those and then my kid wanted to see what else did we see uh side by side by sondheim (laughs) not playing right now (laughs) i wish it had been side by side by sondheim because instead it was uh oh boy why can i not remember all that jazz at least this is the kind of thing where nobody in the audience is like yelling out the right answer unless they were also unless they saw me 
at, at, at the theater. Wait a minute, was it Spider Man? Did you go to see the Spider Man Broadway show? <laughs> yes, I was in New York eight years ago, <laughs> and I saw the troubled production of Spider Man: Turn Off the Dark. No, we went to whatever kid forward one and uh, uh, Dear Evan Hansen. No, it was Mighty Mouse. The musical. Um, there have been musicals based on both Superman and Captain America, I believe. One time in Seattle, I never saw Miss Saigon, although it played here for a long time, but there was a Bronson Pin show vehicle. <laughs> what was he doing? He was doing some kind of review but it was a it was a show but it was just to showcase his abilities it wasn't just like oh. it wasn't just like we're reviving uh uh it felt like a it felt like a South rogers Pacific, and but- hammerstein review mm-hmm. um i think you would react better to just some revival of some 50s era thing if i were going to try to get you man. to go to the theater i would take you to some revival of Pal Joey or something, and you'd probably be much happier than <laughs> than uh, than watching one of these '80s spectacles. Six. We went to six. Do you know what six is? Uh, no. It's a reimagine. The characters are all the six wives of Henry VIII, but it's as if they're in a Spice Girls style girl group, Ooh. a pop group. Um, so they're 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 six sassy songstresses, and uh, yeah, the score is really good. I did go to see. Mark Morris's version of the Nutcracker, which was called The Hard Nut. It's not a musical. Is it not? There's music. <laughs> is it an opera? Is, isn't it dance? Oh, it's a ballet. Does anybody sing? No. He wrote he wrote an autobiography, and I was and I interviewed him about his book mm. at Town Hall. And so you had to go to this thing. <laughs> and so he was in town. But they were doing the hard nut, and and the, I was interviewing him the next night, and it was like, oh, I'll I'll go to this. So I took my little girl, and it was more than she was prepared for. And then it turned out, oh, Mark uh, Mark Morris was actually in the cast, uh, but he was it was dancing. Well, he he didn't do as much dancing anymore. He's he's sort of um, transitioned out of dancing, but uh, but yeah, it was kind of. A lot. It was a lot for me. The reason I mentioned our trip to New York was not to um, compare notes on oh on Music Man. I was, oh, oh I, I thought that's what the show was about. Yeah, this is what the show is about now. Okay. But it's about to take a hairpin turn. <laughs> okay. So if, you, if you've been looking at your watch, <laughs> wondering when we were going to stop talking about the Music Man or Cats, uh, we happened to have some friends who happened to be in New York at the same time. And furthermore, they no happened to have uh, relatives who owned a place in the Hamptons. Oh. And furthermore, there nobody was going to be at this family beach house in the Hamptons. Wow. Was so, it in East Egg by any chance? <laughs> so East and West Egg are more like Great Neck up like at the top of Long Island, like closer to the city. The Hamptons, for those who are not from the uh, eastern seaboard of the late 20th century, is on the far end of Long Island, uh, kind of where the island splits into those two little little tails. Little tails. Um, and on the southern coast, on the Atlantic Ocean, there are a series of beach towns, which are kind historically are. Vac- I mean, especially in the last fifty years or so, are vacation getaways for New Yorkers, and increasingly um, 
for very well healed New Yorkers. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's where it's where those those old shingled super mansions. Yes, on the beach. Um, uh, what was the what was the movie where they kept meeting in Montauk? Uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless That's Mind. That's right. Wonderful, wonderful film. I went out to Montauk. You did. Went out to the lighthouse, found that the exact age of lighthouse docents is the exact age of people who want to talk to me about Jeopardy. Yes, ma'am. So, <laughs> I also found, confusingly, that there was um, a whole bunch of lighthouse memorabilia there donated by Cheryl Teagues. There's a, a ton of historical, uh, historical lighthouse Iana on the walls there in the museum, and it all says, donated by Cheryl Teagues. What? Apparently, she at some point, she married some local guy in Montauk and they had jointly, they had a collection of all this local Americana. Uh, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard. Why are we not doing a show on that? Well, and it's, and she was only married to Peter Beard briefly. He kept living at Montauk and then um, died. Like in the early days of the pandemic, he, he just, he had, I guess had dementia for many years and just wandered out of his house and disappeared. Ooh. And was found, I don't know, like months later in a ravine or something. Whoa. I mean, this was this was decades after he'd been married to Cheryl Teague, so therefore a little less of interest, perhaps. But somehow she ended up with all the lighthouse memorabilia? I wonder if she stayed out there as well. The the whole place has been recently restored. And when you look at the list of the people who have paid to have it restored, it's it's um you can see who hangs out at <laughs> Billy like, Joel. It's, it's it's yeah, it's Paul Simon, uh Lorne Michaels, right, a musical guest, Billy Joel, <laughs> uh David Geffen, Steven Spielberg. Like you can see who's pouring money into the Montauk Lighthouse. There are a lot of names on that part of Long Island that that even people uh, even listeners as far away as Tonga might recognize, like Sag Harbor. Fire Island, the famous uh, gay beach resort. Who in Tonga do you think knows about gay beach getaways? Well, you might be surprised. 10% of Tongans, probably. Go to Tonga and yell about Palm Springs and see who's been. Amityville is out there. Uh, of, well of known. haunted house fame? That's right, of the Amityville horror. And of course, you know, yeah, it's it's where uh, it's where Gatsby famously uh fake lived again that's not near the hamptons dylan was very jealous that we were going to the hamptons because of his only frame of reference which is the seinfeld episode about shrinkage is set in the hamptons no really oh well i guess and it it turned out april was a great time to be there because we had some sunny days but i guess in the summer it's just unnavigable now it's oh because of all the tourists yeah traffic jams and uh Everybody just lining up on the boardwalk for the saltwater taffy. You really can't go anywhere. Shark attacks. But in April, it was nice. It was, you know, it was chilly, but, you know, you could wander around. And we were um, driving through East Hampton at one point and past a cemetery. And I have a kid who's extremely cemetery prone. So we promised on the way back we'd stop at the cemetery. And we did. We hopped out. Was P. Diddy there? In the cemetery? Mm-hmm. Like his grave? No, like he's walking around in a white linen suit, coming up with wraps. No, do you think that's what he does in the Hamptons? I don't, I don't know. Beats me. That's what I would do if I were famous and in the Hamptons. Do you have like well, is is his umbrella man there next to him, like just sheltering him from the elements? Is he just making raps about all the different uh, what rhymes with what rhymes with mausoleum? Cause I'll see him. Hmm, I don't think that's a thing. We were uh, so it's, it's this kind of beautiful preserved part of East Hampton that still has a bunch of these old salt box homes that are you know, probably centuries old, and it's very much whatever the colonial Williamsburg of Long Island is. Um, a big windmill called Gardener's Windmill. Hmm. Uh, Wouldn't have guessed. Walked through the garden next door, saw a sundial that had been placed 
apparently moved because now it was totally at the wrong angle and would never actually work as a sundial. But it was outside the Home Sweet Home Museum, which was dedicated to the author of the 19th century's most popular song. That's right, Home Sweet Home, not the Motley Crue one, uh, by, what's his name? John Howard Payne or something like that. Yes, John Howard Payne. Do you know this song? They played in cartoons when they're putting the baby to bed or something. Right. Anyway, the most popular song of the 19th century. It was written by this American for a Anglo-American operetta of some kind. The During the Civil War, I think everybody got sniffily thinking about home and mother. And Oh, the, I guess I was thinking about the Motley Crue song. <laughs> yeah, no, this is not the Motley Crue song. That was not the most popular, that was the popular song in the 19th century. Not the 20th century either. <laughs> I'm seeing here on the map that uh, the... Uh, the Jackson Pollock Lee Krasner house where they threw paint on the floor is out. Is that right there? And that ways. Well, it's sort of up on one of those, uh, one of those polyps. Now that I look at it now, I see that John Howard Payne actually, that was not his house, this museum. In fact, he didn't have a house despite famously writing home sweet home. He was a, he was a wanderer as a traveling actor. And then as a, as an anthropologist of the Cherokee nation, what he spent a lot of time trying to keep the uh, Trail of Tears from happening unsuccessfully, it turns out. Well, uh, uh, it, it does seem like if you're going to have a sundial, it really has one job. <laughs> Don't point your sundial the wrong way. Uh, but this this was apparently his grandparents' house where he had st- spent some oh. of his childhood. He was such a big celebrity at the time, you know. He, he had to get, get out on Montauk to get away. No, I'm just saying that he he was sufficiently famous for them to be like, hey, this is where his grandpa lived. Let's turn it into a museum. Oh. Anyway, these are the, the historic homes of the earliest settlers. And as I was walking through the cemetery, again, a lot of these graves older than America, I noticed the biggest obelisk in the cemetery reads David Gardner, 1784 to 1844. And I started to put this together. Oh, Gardner's windmill is across the way. Gardner's island is nearby which the Gardner family bought in 1639, I think is still one of the largest privately owned families, uh, islands wow. in the United States. That's because Lion Gardner, uh, David Gardner's ancestor, was the uh, had founded the first settlement on Long Island, basically the first European settlement in what became the state of New York. Was he Dutch? No, I believe English. The, does that mean the English actually got to... To New York State before the Dutch. I think they were they were both they were both contesting, but Gardner's Island's way out at the end, so yeah. maybe the Dutch didn't make it that far. But this, I'm, what I'm saying is, this um, Lion Gardner settlement was the fir- predated any Dutch settlement in the state of New York. Oh. oh no, maybe that's wrong. Maybe it was the first English settlement, but not the first European. That that might be right. 1639 actually. would have been after the first Dutch. Yeah, but his son David, not the one whose obelisk I saw, but an earlier David, became the first white baby born in the state of Connecticut. <laughs> That's something. But not the last. Yeah, can you imagine the doctor's surprise? Ma'am, this is the first white baby born in the state of Connecticut. Is there something you want to tell us? But as I'm as I'm reading his giant obelisk, trying to figure out who is this guy that has, besides just a rich scion of a rich family, why does he have this giant obelisk? And the language on the, I'm walking around the four sides of it, and the language is very interesting. It talks about how his death in February 1844 was the darkest day in the history of the Republic. Germany. And I'm thinking, who is this guy and why was his death such a dark day in the history of America? And as I started— Sounds like he was a fun guy and 
Everyone's super bummed. Yeah. Everyone was super bummed. Um, as I read up on it, I realized this was an episode in U.S. history that I was kind of vaguely familiar with, but I did not know the whole contours of it. So let me take you back, to John, to the 1840s. Let's set the Wayback Machine to the 1840s. Let's set the Wayback Machine for the presidency of John Tyler. One of the, one of the I think, widely accepted greatest presidencies. Yeah. I will open my wallet now and give you all the money with John Tyler's John picture on it. John Tyler. John Tyler was called his accidency because no one expected him to become president. In fact, no one to this day is quite clear on how he even became vice president. It was a thing where uh, both both parties wanted something and neither one could get it and neither nobody was organized and pretty soon John Tyler was the only one left standing, right? It definitely was a case of factions in the Whig party. He was running as William Henry Harrison's running mate. Uh, for the Whig nomination, eighteen forty-two, Harrison was a Whig. Harrison was a war hero for, um, you know, the only thing you could be a war hero for back then, slaughtering a ton of native people. Sure. Um, well, you could be a war hero hero for slaughtering a bunch of English people. Still. Yes, or pirates. Pirates. That was about it. What were the other ones? Children, women, and children. French. <laughs> they would ask you, "Who who would you like to slaughter if you want to run for president, <laughs> sir?" French or native people. Uh. And yeah, for whatever reason, perhaps because Tyler was from Virginia, um, yeah, or he was not one of the more even everybody else, all the other more likely candidates like Henry Clay or whatever had had made the mistake of backing one Whig faction or the other, whereas John Taylor had John John Tyler had recently switched parties from the Democratic Party back when the Democratic Republicans were the only party, right. So he had recently switched over from the Democratic Party to the Whigs during the J- Jackson administration as a slave owner, as you might presume, a, a, a Virginia plantation owner of the time. I guess we shouldn't slay a slave owner. Now we say an enslaver of people. I don't know the right way to say that. Boy, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't read that. Sometimes people don't like don't to know. use slave as a noun. Oh, You want to say enslaved people, so the, it emphasizes their humanity and not the accidency of them being, you know put in chains. I see. <laughs> it seems like it was intentional putting them in chains. It feels less like an accident. Oh, right. Sorry. I meant, yeah. I, I didn't mean the happenstance. I meant the, uh, the, the, the situation, the, the situation, <laughs> right. The, uh, the unfortunate misfortune. How about that? This was an era where most American presidential politics and, and national politics was about compromising with Southern states and trying to figure out a way to, Eliminate slavery without eliminating slavery and uh, to keep the Southern states from rebelling by giving them everything they asked for and getting nothing in return. Yeah. uh, 30 to 50 years of terrible tension that uh, apparently in the end did nothing except prolong slavery. Um, Right. We should have fought that civil war in 1790. Get it out of the way. Should we have told them? I mean. Who? I mean, the slaves. Yes. First thing, <laughs> the founding fathers. <laughs> oh, the if founding you guys fathers. could just manage to have a civil, I know you just had a revolution, but if yeah. you guys could just manage to have a civil war, I mean, for one thing, if you just go back and tell the North, they can just start to do a sneak attack. Maybe we shouldn't have Pearl Harbor uh, style civil war. We shouldn't have uh, fought for a union at all. We should have had two countries, the North and the South, and then they could have fought an actual war, not a civil war. And the North would have wiped up the South with all of our industrial manufacturings. 
the Tyler had become disillusioned with the Democrats over Andrew Jackson's more big government approach, you know, founding a bank of the United States and whatnot. He thought he he felt he as a as a slave owning Southerner had been betrayed by his party. Being disillusioned with the Democrats is a long American tradition. <laughs> uh, so Tyler switches to the Democrat uh, to the Whigs. Somehow becomes William Henry Harrison's running mate, perhaps in order to allow for the rhyme Tippecanoe and Tyler too. Yep. Although when you think about it, any two syllable last name would have done there. Tippecanoe and Johnson too. It's Tyler, not as good. Tyler. All you need is somebody whose name is a uh, starts with T and is two syllables. Is a uh, uh, what is that? It's a. Uh, it's, not, it's a trochee? No, Tippecanoe and Tony, too. Tippecanoe and... Is that a trochee? A stressed syllable than an, un, an unstressed syllable? Uh, That's yes. That's a good question. Of the correct. two of us, I'm the one that should probably know that, but I don't. So you could have nominated any candidate with a trochaic surname, but they didn't. They nominated Senator John Tyler. Tippecanoe and Ticonderoga, too. <laughs> too long. It would still work, though. And as a result, I think many of us, if you're a fan of American history, you know what's going to happen here. Mm. Vice presidency was an extremely um, low-stakes office back then. No vice president had ever acceded to the presidency, and for that reason, people have short imaginations, and they just assumed it would never happen. Sure. Unfortunately, what are the chances? Unfortunately, that William Henry Harrison was inaugurated and died 30 days later. Yeah, that was inauspicious. The story about him dying because he gave a... Long speech without a hat. Lengthy speech without a hat at his inauguration seems to not be true, because the proximate cause of his death actually... It was pneumonia... But it seems that, you know, a oh, few- I thought you were going to say it was a bullet to the chest. I have a secret theory. <laughs> the magic bullet from Dealey Plaza heads north, goes back in time 120 years. No, uh, he went for a walk. He, I guess he always took some constitutional in Washington, D.C. back then. You just go to the post office or whatever. Yeah. And he got caught in the rain without a coat and then got pneumonia. So it's pretty much the story you've heard, but it actually happened a couple weeks later. Huh. And, uh, but who can tell where the pneumonia got started? Exactly. Maybe it was... It started two weeks before. Maybe he was already a little... His, his immune system was already troubled by his too lengthy speech on a freezing day. I think that's right. Anyway, suddenly John Tyler is president. This has never happened in the history of America, so it seems very uh, illegitimate and kind of a Bush v. Gorey kind of way. Yeah, shouldn't we just undo this and have another election? And the real problem is that Tyler opposes nearly all of his running mate's policies because this was a time when this was part of the compromise the president came from one party and the vice president another that had been changed by i believe the 12th amendment oh, so that, okay. that was already different um it wasn't no longer the electoral runner-up it was a chosen runner uh, running mate but, but be- he had made the switch to a new party yeah just it just before. happened in this case it happened to be somebody who had recently been on the other side of the aisle and who didn't really agree with most of the policy aims of his running mate right and that wouldn't have mattered if he were just a a normal dopey vice president. Yeah, he should have been uh, the senator from West Virginia. But Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's kind of what happens. The, there's a Whig Congress that was expecting to get everything it wanted from President Harrison, and now Tyler is vetoing his own party's legislation. Oh, Tyler. And the so the Democrats hate him for walking out. The Whigs now hate him for blocking their uh, agenda, mostly regarding the Bank of the United States. Um, he is having a terrible, unproductive administration. Nobody in Washington, D.C. likes him. And uh, the following year in September, his beloved wife, Letitia, father of, or mother of his eight children, dies of a stroke. Oh, what a bad month. He's having an all-time uh, Annus uh, Horribilis mm-hmm. for a U.S. president. 
And he has staked, by, 19, by 1844, the year in which David Gardner's tombstone is set, he has staked the future of his presidency on something that is popular with both parties, territorial expansion. Yeah. You know, what, you, you, know what you can always win votes with? Pushing more indigenous people out of the way. Manifest destiny. He, uh, our man wants to annex Texas. Oh, yeah, and you can go against the Mexicans. That's also popular in America. The problem with that is America is not a naval power, and annexing Texas is the only the kind of thing you can do if you're pretty sure you can hold your own against the Spains and the Frances and the Britons of the world. Right, and they're all down there monkeying around anyway. And so this is just a wag-the-dog scenario where, because he's electorally unpopular, he needs to pivot hard to uh, hawkish foreign policy, and in particular, impressive naval armaments 1840 is also the dawn of well, not the dawn but it's the early days of the steam age of ocean going right as we have discussed on the omnibus before i mean the very first steam vessels would have been 20 or 30 years before by this point but they were primitive they were paddle wheel mm-hmm. driven um, weren't they still in 1840 paddle wheel uh the the very in 1844, I think the just in the last couple of years, side the, paddle. The very first sh- uh, systems uh, sh- ships that actually had propellers, screw propulsion, screw propellers powered by a steam engine, were actually starting to hit the water. Interesting. Um, and in this case, there is a new U.S. Navy warship called the Princeton that uh, everyone in the Navy is very excited about. It's going to have, a, uh, it's, it's a steam engine powered by anthracite coal, which is, you know, a more effective furnace, burns more hotly, so it's a more effective engine. And crucially for a naval vessel, for a, for a warship, the engine is below the water line. Mm-hmm. This is a whole new configuration. So less vulnerable to enemy fire. Plus it has a tattoo of a tiger on its butt. All the sailors have tattoos of, Tigers on their butt. So the steam engine being below the water also lowers the center of gravity, so it's less tippy canoe. <laughs> yeah, you don't want a tippy canoe <laughs> when you're when you've got Tyler too. And uh, right, faster, able to leap capital T's with a single bound. It's the uh, and it's got new armament. It's got these new twelve-inch, twenty-seven-thousand-pound cannons called Peacemaker and Oregon, respectively. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's what you want to call your. 27,000 pound cannon, the Peacemaker. My, my twin boys are named Peacemaker in Oregon. <laughs> that, if, you, if you live on a militia compound somewhere, you should definitely name your two wrestling blonde boys Peacemaker, Peacemaker in, Oregon, in Oregon. 100%. Although Oregon's a blue state now, so a little tricky. Well, only the one sliver of it. <laughs> only the sliver of wherever he lives. Any, any, anyone who's taken a motorcycle trip there in the last year or so will tell you. My sister lives in Medford. I've seen it all. Yeah. Ken, how's your hair? My hair feels great. It's actually it's pretty full and and uh, f- and fluffy. I don't want to brag. They stopped having to fill in the back of my head with on, spray foam. Yeah, there's kind of there's like a th- you know because like harsh TV lights really yeah. make people look balder than they are. Sometimes they have been filling in the back of my head, and they don't have to anymore. They don't have to. I mean, it, you know the the degree to which a full head of hair is part of uh, you know a kind of masculine identity you are in a in a position where millions of people see well millions uh some number of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people no, see <laughs> see you every week uh hosting the jeopardy program and you don't want to look like um less than 
the full amount of fluff. The problem with our um, cultural obsession with hair and baldness is that like literally two out of three guys, the majority of men will experience some kind of male pattern baldness in their mid thirties, you know, by the time they're 35. Right. And then it just goes up from there. So it's not like it's a, a, a rare or severe or stigmatized problem. It shouldn't be. It happens to almost everybody. And it used to be if you wanted to get um, like an, uh, a hair loss preventing medicine, you had to go to a doctor, right? Yeah. You'd have to get a prescription sometimes. You'd have to use a name brand. And uh, a lot of them aren't FDA approved. Yes. There's two FDA approved ones. And the great thing is Only you, two. you can get both of them uh, cheaper and easier with Keeps. Uh, an online service for ordering, for prescribing and ordering, uh, and then continuing to receive uh, FDA-approved hair loss medication. Oh, so it still is a prescription in order to, to get the one of the two FDA-approved If you want ones. the prescribed one, yeah, you can get the prescription online. Um, you don't have to visit a doctor. Uh, you'll get a cheaper generic, so you're going to save a ton of money. And it's really important to do it when you think you might be in the early stages, because, you know, the best thing you can do is maintain. I mean, there may be some regrowth, but the great, the great thing is you can keep what you have now. I remember when you had less hair and it's sort of phenomenal that it's worked and look at your hair now. Uh, Seemed like well, you, you. you look like a little badger. That's what I asked for. Uh-huh. I went to my doctor because, uh, you know, this is before I knew about keeps. And I said, what do you have that will make me look like a little badger? He said, doctor. Mr. MD. So if you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, what do you do? Go to keeps, K-E-E-P-S dot com slash omnibus. And if you use that code, you'll get your first month of treatment for free. You're saying K-E-E-P-S dot com slash omnibus to get your first month free? K-E-E-P-S dot com slash omnibus. Cannons are the brainchild of a Navy inventor named John Erickson. Mm-hmm. whose name may be familiar to you because he later becomes famous for... Washing machines. For inventing Ericsson washing machines. No, for the ironclad ship, the Monitor. Oh, there he is. During the Civil War. If you've ever... Uh, if you, you can maybe picture there's a monument to John Erickson just south of the Lincoln Memorial, just right on the Potomac. It's kind of in the middle of a traffic circle there, kind of between the Tidal Basin and the Potomac. And if you've ever driven around that area looking for parking unsuccessfully like i have a couple times yes you may have driven by john erickson's monument in real european vacation style over and over i used to sit there uh, at the monument because i was hoping to see clinton jog by uh, eating fried chicken out of a barrel unfortunately it was 2010 and he never <laughs> no. he never showed no it was 18 or, i'm sorry not 18 it was 1989 and he wasn't there either yeah i don't think he really jogged as often as he wanted us to think he was, it was just that one time he was just jogging to McDonald's. But he walked, he jogged across that bridge. So that's where I looked for him. Uh, Erickson has put these giant new cannons on the Princeton. Captain Robert Stockton of the Princeton is excited to show off the cannons, and Erickson is telling him they are not ready. So they sail up the Potomac and he bombards Washington. <laughs> sort of. Uh, he bombards Virginia on the morning of February 28th, 1844 a pleasure cruise to demonstrate America's new naval power and the personified by the USS Princeton is planned on the Potomac river. Okay. There's a big VIP list. President Tyler himself is there with leaders of both parties. He's going to, this is the thing that's going to revive his presidency. It's infrastructure week mm-hmm. in, 
in Tyler's Washington. So there's fancy uh, cocktails and canapes aboard. There's a brass band playing. Um, the sun is sparkling on the river. It's a cold but but a uh, beautiful day in late February. They sail into the Gulf of Tonkin. <laughs> wow, <laughs> what, a, what a turn this has taken! It's been a great quantum leap episode. The 400 guests come from uh, you know the best of uh, the highest echelons of government and the highest ranks of DC society. The presidents are there, of course. Secretary of State Abel Upshur. That's a real mm-hmm. Abel Upshur. Real uh, can confirm familiar name. What, what do you what do you say? Uh, what a name is super famous in American history. It's a uh, what's the expression for this? A uh, famous name in American history. That's it. That's it. That's yeah. what I'm thinking. Thomas Walker Gilmer, the Secretary of the Navy, is there. Six senators, including uh, no less than Thomas Hart Benton, uh-huh. D. Missouri. Um, Dolly Madison herself is wow. there. I think in her 80s at this point, or pushing 80. Yeah. You know, James Madison having died maybe five years before, she is now kind of the last surviving of the old guard tie to the founding fathers. Yeah. You know, and she's a, she's a kind of an iconic figure in her own right, White House hostess, heroine of the War of 1812. A real celeb. Big name to have aboard. Currently running one of Washington's most prominent bordellos. No, that's not true. <laughs> and then a bunch of just moneyed bigwigs from DC society, big lawyers, one of whom is David Gardner and mm. his two daughters. Okay. Uh, his daughter, Julia, has recently come from, you know, whatever the family home in Staten Island or Long Island is to join her dad in DC and has immediately uh, charmed the city's social set no end. Oh, did she debutante? Did yes. she debut? She is a beautiful young woman. You know, if you look at a picture of, of Julia Gardiner with an eye, you'll see that, you know, even by our standards, she'd be a sparkling young woman, a great addition to any party. And, and this is an era with the uh, where where the style was uh, big curls, like head of curls with the with a with a ribbon. Um, yeah, she's got kind of a tiara in the portrait I'm seeing. Of oh, her I see the tiara. Of. She does have that 1840s uh, pose where her head is kind of tilted at an angle. Where if you see it once, it looks cute, but after you see it repeated. 50 times, it, it seems a little bit... It actually looks like she's her neck has just been broken in an Evil Dead movie. Yeah. You it know, does, it's like nothing has nothing has stopped the zombie. She she's still coming at you. a little bit like a zombie, yeah. Wow, there's a doll of her. Go on. I encourage our listeners to not Google Julia Gardner at this point because it will give away the rest of the story oh, of this episode. Sorry, did I just give it away? I, no, I don't think okay. you have. I don't think you have. It's up to the listener. So Captain Robert Stockton of the U.S. Navy is in full dress uniform at 11 a.m., when they pull out of the docket on the, onto the Potomac with the band playing the Star Spangled Banner. That's, and that's how you know it's a party, right? When a marching band plays this. I guess they're not marching if they're on a ship. If Wait, a naval band plays the Star Spangled Banner, Banner, Banner wouldn't have been written yet. What, no, oh, it was. War of 1812. War of 1812, yeah. So that's kind of funny. It's, it's then a song about something that happened 32 years ago. Right. So for us, it would be like a song about 1990. It would be like um, yeah. Faith by George Michael. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> plays as they pull out of dock. Now keep in mind that Erickson has warned Captain Stockton that the guns are not ready for prime time. But Stockton is bragging about how these... <laughs> Stockton is not listening. He has bragged about how amazing these guns are. And over Erickson's objections, he impresses the guests with two big volleys. They watch the cannonballs boom away. In fact, they skip over the water. You can watch oh, them skip like a stone five or six times That's cool. as they head off into the distance. Everyone loves it. A good time is being had by all. It looks as if um, 
rehabilitation for the Tyler presidency is in the cards. Skipping cannonballs will do it every time. His his approval rating just went up one point per skip. Mm-hmm. And everybody heads below decks for the food. That's where the, all the champagne is. Toasts to the Republic. Toasts to Tyler. Toasts to the charming women present. Ha ha ha. Lots of sex Ty- in yeah. the style he, of the time. Huge orgy is happening below decks. No, no, this is not like the Titanic with um, oh, right. a bunch of Irishmen getting it on down below. This is a this is DC society, John. No sex till 9 p.m. Um, what am I, a farmer? John Tyler offers two to- uh, a toast to the peacemaker and the Oregon. And then I think I think he uh, somebody else offers a toast to the third big gun here, President Tyler. Hey! And they all have a they all have a laugh. Hip hip. Now, uh, some of the guests want to see another firing as the as the uh, Princeton passes Mount Vernon. It's suggested that they fire upon George Washington. To salute George Washington. There oh, would be an right. insult to the memory of uh, the father of his country if we didn't fire a, a lusty peacemaker salute toward Mount Vernon. The future home of the Daughters of the Confederacy. And that's where I, that's how I like to be saluted. Like, boom! My ghost will be unquiet unless you're constantly firing boom! cannons at my family home. Have you ever had a, uh, a uh, like a six-gun salute? No. I've been to a military funeral, so I guess I've heard, what are they, how many salutes at a, at a veteran's funeral? Three? Does it depend on the rank? No, it's, a. Uh, it's, uh, what is it? You have, you have three gunmen firing yeah, a three few times. times. Is that right? Uh, let, let's get this right. Let's just guess high because then it shows how much we support the troops. A 40-gun salute. It's a 21-gun salute. How could I have forgotten but wait, that? Isn't that just for like the president? Uh, no, it's the, it's the, all, it's the all most... Mili- all military funerals have a 21-gun salute? It's the most common... A number of salutes. Okay. So think, seven guns. I think in this case it was three guns firing seven times. There it is. Three guns firing seven times. I mean, the thing about 21 is there's no other divisors. Right. Three, you can't seven. Have, you can't have six guns firing three and a half times. 21 and one. Uh, you could have 21 guns firing once. Yes. Can you imagine? Or one gun firing 21 times, but you'd be there all day. When I was King Neptune. Diddy's in the cemetery just getting bored. When I was King Neptune, I, uh, you know, I, I boarded many naval ships at invitation. I wasn't doing it as a pirate. And um, I really wanted to be piped aboard because when an officer yeah, comes on, you get that pipe and uh, they wouldn't do it. I was like, look, I'm the king. I'm King Neptune. I'm in a, a uniform that I made myself and they, they refused. It's a small favor. I didn't want a 21-gun salute. I just wanted to somebody hit the pipes. Just find a Star Trek app that plays that sound. I should have done. And just... Use it on your phone. Uh, so as they pass Mount Vernon, Secretary of the Navy Gilmore tells Captain Stockton, "Hey, fire the fire the peacemaker again." And he's like, "No, bro, I said it's we, not ready." Well, Stockton's the one who was told by Erickson it's not ready, and Stockton says, "Well, you know, we uh, the inventor is not crazy about firing again," and, and turns him down. But you know, the Secretary of the Navy is telling him, yeah, right. what to do. So he's forced. To change his mind. What do you have to do to a gun to make it ready? It's either ready or it's not, right? I, I think it's a matter of ma- uh, possibly how it's mounted to oh, the okay. deck. Okay. I'm not sure what Erickson's objection was. It may just be that this is this is still a gun that has not actually been field tested. Okay. And so maybe you don't want to try it out on a boat full of dignitaries and, and, uh, and partying debutantes. Right. Because it's made out of tangerines, which was an untested... Uh, Technology at the time. I'm just saying you got a bunch of guys eating jellied eel uh-huh. and, uh, you know, various aspects 
and uh, think how think how all that food is going to jiggle if something goes wrong with the gun. That'll ruin a debutante's day. The secretary, yeah, you don't want a jiggling debutante. Maybe you do. Mm-hmm. The secretary of state heads down, heads below decks to tell President Tyler, "Hey, uh, stop orgying. We're, yeah, put your pants, <laughs> put your breeches back on." Mr. President, he says, "Hey, we're passing Mount Vernon, and we've talked Captain Stock- Captain Stockton into firing the gun again, and that you know how awesome that was." And Tyler's like, "Uh, yeah, okay, I'll be right up." And as he as he's turning to head out of the out of the hold, the band begins playing a patriotic song he loves. Some I don't know what the song. Well, I don't, history does not record, but some some song about the heroism of the spirit of 1776. Home Sweet Home and, by Motley Crue. <laughs> it's Home Sweet Home by Motley Crue. No, it's just one of these songs that we don't have anymore about um oh. about Valley Forge and right, the, right, right. the the patriot dream that sees beyond the years. And about Tyler, somebody turning into a macaroni. And Tyler's like, "Oh boy, like that is his jam." He was like, you know, I am not leaving the club. <laughs> As, as long as they are playing to the this song about the spirit of 76. So he does not, he, he tarries. And uh, in particular, um, you know, the charming women, Julia Gardner is there as well. Maybe that's one reason why he's happier to be below decks than up above. I'm not saying there was an orgy. I'm going to continue to repeat. The story has zero orgies in it. Like nearly all uh, uh, stories of the 1840s. Well, almost no omnibus has a, has an orgy. There are a few orgies, but it doesn't come up that often. We've never had an orgy. So you're saying even the waterbed show didn't have an orgy. What if the captain or the or the messenger had to gone the to the band leader and yeah. said, "We're about to fire the gun." Yeah, don't play that 1776 song that Tyler is so into. But so Tyler's moonwalking across the dance floor, and suddenly they all hear the big boom, and they you know everybody below cheers because there's been a another successful firing of the peacemaker. They assume only seconds later to have a sailor come downstairs with his face blackened with soot like a like cartoon wily e. coyote to say um there's been a terrible accident uh you need to come uh, above decks uh, many are dead whoa so suddenly everyone you know that that stops the party pretty quick <laughs> everybody heads up to the deck Talk and about pull on your breeches bodies are strewn on the deck multi-ton pieces of metal have apparently flown off the cannon and its mounting. The cannon itself didn't explode, but everything around it did? Or did the cannon explode? I think the I think maybe the barrel did... I would expect that the barrel exploded. Did somebody put a cork in the end of the cannon? Because that'll do it. The Peacemaker was not ready for prime time. I guess the barrel of the gun had burst. Oh, boy. So you get flames and heat and giant pieces of metal flying into a crowd full of Again, like the heads of American government. Wow. Um, two cabinet officers, six senators, and many are dead. In fact, Secretary of State Upshur lies dead on the deck. So does Secretary of the Navy Thomas Walker Gilmer. Um, two of the wealthy, uh, let's see, Captain Beverly Kennan is among the dead. That's back when um, nearly every strapping American sailor was named Beverly or something, mm-hmm. Florence or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was the, the head of some kind of... Uh, Naval Bureau, let's see, the Bureau of Construction and Repair. Yeah. Well, that wrong guy to die. <laughs> if you're gonna Well, he was there, he was there to celebrate the construction. He did not survive to see the repair, unfortunately. Uh the president's the president was safe below decks, luckily, but his valet Armistead, an enslaved person, a black slave, is dead. Armistead? Imagine a time, like, you know, we know how many of the of the president's 
had enslaved people. But imagine a time when, like, literally your body man in the Oval Office is a black slave, because that's what was going on in the Tyler administration. Right. Um, Armistead has been killed. And then two wealthy attorneys, including, tragically, David Gardner, whose obelisk I saw in East Hampton. It is the worst— His daughter survived. It is, yeah, both daughters were below decks with the president. Probably not coincidentally. That's why he was there. That's where the pretty girls were. And he's a bachelor now. Now, this is the worst incident of its kind in American history. And uh, that probably continues for, I mean, is there has there been any other day when two cabinet officers died in the same incident? Uh, I'm trying to think. I mean, certainly the Lincoln assassination it was a bad day. Bad day. And there were attempts on who? Seward and maybe Hannibal, uh, Andrew Johnson's life as well, I think. Pearl Harbor was a bad day, but no cabinet officers died. No. I mean, just this was unprecedented, and it was the 9-11 of, the pre, of pre-Civil War America. Well, that's one of my favorite conspiracy theories. You know, no cabinet members died on 9-11. Are there usually a bunch of cabinet members uh, in the windows of the world <laughs> well, observation deck? It just makes you think. Makes you think. Yeah. Uh, 23-year-old Julia, the younger daughter of... David Gardner comes up on deck, sees her father is dead, and because it's 1844, swoons. Of course. Swoons into the arms of President Tyler, who, as they make for sure, ends up carrying her down the gangplank heroically. The the president carrying a... a, a, Swooning. A nubile, swooning (laughs) 23-year-old. She, in fact, in later retellings of the story, and this is contested because it seems unlikely, actually wakes up in his arms on the gangplank and not knowing where she is, begins to struggle and nearly knocks the president into the Potomac. Um, Don't do that. But this That's going to make the papers. But this actually, uh, in addition to being the 9-11 of the 1840s, is also the cutest Aaron Sorkin romantic moment of the 1840s. <gasps> because President Tyler has had his eye on young Julia ever since his wife died. Even though she is, what, 30 years his junior? Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, apparently, the fact that she's a beautiful 23-year-old does not dissuade him. No, oh, that was the style of the time. What, what, a, what a surprising uh, surprising turn of events for a powerful man yeah. to be interested in a, a, a 23-year-old debutante at, at all the society balls. We used to tie onions to our belt and marry women 30 years our junior. Now, Julia has, Julia has been, despite the fact that he's the president, she has been putting him off. Right. Um, for he's thirty years her senior. For a year, for a year or more. Um, but that day, as he carries her down the gangplank with her her father's body still on the deck and smoke still rising from the accident that's killed, you know, uh, uh, one quarter of the cabinet. She realizes this is a, a meat cute. Here is her actual quote: After I lost my father, I felt differently toward the president. He seemed to fill the place. And to be more agreeable in every way than any younger man was or could ever be. Now, I don't want to diagnose somebody who's been dead for well over a century with daddy issues. Yeah. But here is somebody who lost her rich, beloved father in a terrible accident and immediately starts dating a gaunt older man in a high collar in a position of political power. Um, She's maybe replacing daddy. Yeah. I suppose. You don't buy it? Well, um, no, you're absolutely right. 100%. You know, this is a, uh, this is a a side plot in David Copperfield, which I'm reading right now. Which, uh, 
a younger wife? Yeah, Dr. Strong is sort of an absent-minded professor, and he is married to a, a, a much younger woman named Annie. And everyone in the book suspects that Annie is has a young lover, but it turns out, spoiler alert, if you haven't read it, turns out really she's devoted to him. And she says in her, in her uh, confessional soliloquy that she is, um, that she loves him both as a lover and, and as a father. Oh, that's, that's what you, that's what every man dreams of hearing. And you know, David Copperfield and this event here on the, uh, the deck of the Princeton, on the deck of the Princeton, uh, they're very contemporaneous. When did Copperfield come out? Is it 1840s or 1850s? Um, it's the 1840s, right? David, well, here's, unfortunately, if you, if you, uh, if you Google David Copperfield, you get the, you get the magician. 1840. That's also a, you know, Claudia Schiffer had some daddy issues too. Let's, let's right. be honest. Right. She wanted a guy with a, with a nice, uh, big wand. Hmm. May 1849. So yes, five years later, I think a funny, um, idea for like an SNL audition character would be guy who just read David Copperfield and likes to compare things to David Copperfield. Hey, that's me. You know, no matter what happens, you're like, <laughs> well, well, you know what Mr. Macabre would say to that. You know, this is another example of a television show proposed by people that don't watch television. <laughs> David Copperfield guy. <laughs> so a mere less than four months to the day after her father's death, President John Tyler marries Julia Gardner oh. in secret. Oh. And then, well, you know, it, it just, uh, he doesn't want to, there a lot of eyebrows have already been raised about the age difference. He does not want gossip. He, a sitting president gets married for the first time in the nation's history. And maybe it's only happened two subsequent times, I want to say. But wait, Cleveland he, he, and Teddy? He doesn't want there to be gossip. So he marries a, a young woman in secret? What a way to precipitate gossip. Well, he just doesn't have a big ball or whatever. Oh, oh, and then he announces, uh, my fellow Americans. By the way. Why is he Obama? My fellow Americans. He announces that he's married a 23-year-old woman. Uh, and she becomes the first lady of the United States. Right on. High five. Is she the youngest first lady? 23. The only possible. This is such a Jeopardy The only question. possible contender would be uh, Francis Cleveland who in an even ickier story was a daughter of a friend of Bachelor President Grover Cleveland, who he had known since she was a little girl, and he used to joke with her dad about how, well, I can't wait till she's old enough for me to marry. Uh-oh. And then he did. Ooh. Let's see. She was born in 1864 and became first lady at the age of 29. There uh, you go. That, that, that. Oh, that, no, 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 no. I'm that's wrong. That's nice. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. That's oh. his second term. She was first lady two non-consecutive times, of course. Of course, of course. Her first time was 1886 when she was only 22. She was younger than Julia Gardner. Whoa, 22. There, there have been two first ladies who are like younger than... Yeah, college Gigi seniors. Hadid. Yeah, basically. That's crazy. Not recently, however. Well, uh, different times. I mean, not that different. I mean, Melania Trump is also a much younger third wife. Right, but... Much younger but, but, than her yeah. decrepit not, ancient husband. Not 22. Julia Gardner's great gift to the nation is she was the one who liked the marching band tune Hail to the Chief. Oh, I, I suddenly had this picture of her giving it a thumbs up emoji. Like, 
<laughs> totally like Tale to the Chief. <laughs> Blink. Yeah, if you like Hail to the Chief, don't forget to uh, like and share on yeah, subscribe. Navy, hashtag Navy Band. So she liked the song. And she insisted it always be played at receptions when she and her husband entered, and that became an American tradition. I mean, if you write a song called Hail to the Chief, you're, you're, you're hoping that that happens. Yeah, I mean, what if only uh, a police chief likes it? I mean, it could be uh, like a cool chief could like it, like Crazy Horse. Yeah, but it's not like, like she it. said, boy, three is the magic number is such a great tune. You got to always play three <laughs> is the magic number when we come in the room. I mean, maybe it was the three is the magic number of her. Hail to the chief. Of her time, yeah. Um, you know, as, as you would expect, her husband died long before her. John Tyler did not go on to have a, a great administration full of accomplishments. He was not successful in seeking the, uh, the 1844 uh presidential nomination um as the as abolitionism became more of a serious movement in america he became more and more disturbed you know he he was one of these guys who never actually defended slavery in any way except to say except by having slaves. except by I have, I have a ton of slaves and boy it would sure be inconvenient if uh if they were freed which he, i which i guess is a pretty good representation for a lot of a lot of liberal beliefs today like this is this is, this is clearly an injustice, but if I speak the, out against it, yeah. At the same time, nobody I mean, paid off my student loans. My house is worth a million too. <laughs> I'm not really into. I it. don't think property taxes should go up. The more I think about it, do you want to know the most hilarious thing about 15 years, 10 years ago? Maybe I was sitting casting around looking for something to read. I don't know what I was. I was in the bathroom somewhere, and I I had this extremely thick biography of John Tyler. Why? I had a friend that worked at Amazon in the early days and they used to get uh, all the books. <laughs> yeah, they did. They had, but the, and at the very bottom of the list was this biography of John Tyler, whatever their, whatever this person's job was, they had all of the, the um, paper copy, advanced copy books. And every time some, you know, new book about Churchill came in, they would throw it in a box and give it to me, all the stuff that they figured nobody else wanted. And this John Tyler book was in there, along with, you know, 70 books about, whoa, sorry, 70 books about other things that were even less interesting, 30 years war. And I was like, I'll read this 800-page book about John Tyler. And I read it and retained almost nothing. <laughs> like, it's... The, I think the subtitle of the book was a president that you, that that you can say very little about, but here's 800 pages on it. And honestly, well, he's a more interesting figure later in life yeah. because, you know, as uh, his reaction to the abolitionist movement was to become increasingly pro-Southern to the degree that uh, he, you know, he and he and Julia were great friends with Jefferson and Verena Davis. And in 18, when Civil War broke out, he rode south. He was, he had been elected, I think, to the Confederate legislature. And uh, an ex-president, this is a real feather in the Confederacy's cap, they have an ex-president serving in their, in their government. Um, there you go. But kind of a, kind of a bummer, like, like we were talking about earlier today, if you're in a successful band, do you, do you go play bass in some dumb band? No, you you have a little dignity, right? He uh, he actually died 
en route to Richmond. He was he was on a horse down to join the Confederacy when he was felled by a stroke. Lol. The hand of God, apparently. Um, Julia Tyler spent the rest of the war living in, you know, this ex-first lady. There was no Secret Service protection, of course, but she had her family money, so she was living in a very nice Staten Island mansion from which she basically operated a kind of pro-Confederate bund, like a... <sighs> Like a kind of a fifth columnist organization, not outright espionage, but definitely, you know, how do we get better treatment for Southern prisoners? You know, he, 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 what peace efforts can we do that kind of weaken the North? Um, at, one, at one point, rowdies came into the house and found a Confederate banner and burned it. Oh, yeah. And she had to protest to the paper that, oh, it was merely decorative. Sure. We just have That's, the Nazi flag as a, as a joke. Uh, didn't John Tyler famously, uh, he when he was... When he was dying, he said, I'm dying, and and uh, and somebody was like, no, I hope not. And he said, no, perhaps it's for the best. Weren't those his famous last words? <laughs> Is that true? I, I remember it. Perhaps it's for the best, and you, then died. You were in the bathroom like, uh, You were in the bathroom a long time if you actually got to the— uh, Oh, I read the whole thing. Right? Oh, you're right. Yeah, right. Perhaps it was the best. The doctor but, said, I hope not, sir. Tyler then said, perhaps— Maybe he had a moment of clarity about his— uh, his Maybe. life as a plantation owner. <laughs> Maybe it's best. I'm on my way to join the Confederacy. Nah, perhaps it's best. The interesting thing about this May-December romance between John and Julia is she was able to bear him 10 more children, bringing his legitimate lifetime total to 18. What? A record for any president. How long were they married? Uh, He died in 1862. They were married 18 more years. And she had 10 children. And she had a child, almost all of them. <laughs> almost every one of those years brought a new child. Wow. Maybe there were multiples. I'm not sure. You know, it's uh, analogous to Charles Dickens, whose wife also. <laughs> oh, that classic character is that guy who just read David Copperfield. Let's see what he would say in this situation. <laughs> she was pregnant uh, almost the entire, every year of her marriage. She was pregnant but, at some point. But always with the same baby. It was the same baby. She was like, a, she was like an elephant. It wouldn't come out. She was pregnant for <laughs> a decade. Well, the implication, this is maybe the thing that people know. You know we have a friend, by the way, who's descended from John Tyler. I did not know that. Have you ever seen those two little pistols that Maria Semple has in oh, their front room? Oh, she did. Yeah. Oh. Novelist Maria Semple is a, is a descendant of, and those uh, are of John Tyler. John Tyler's pistols. Apparently, yes. That's her family legacy. But here's the interesting thing, and this is the trivia, that if you know anything about John Tyler, you've probably seen this because it's on NPR twice Wait, a week. I'm remembering a time when I was at her house and she showed me the John Tyler pistols and I said I had read a John Tyler biography. This is, this is 15 years this ago. This has come up twice in your life now. That, wow. That biography has really paid off for I, you. But the thing is, I had even forgotten that. So do you remember this thing about John Tyler, that because he was having uh, kids into his... Let's see. He was born seventies, right, or sixties? Yes, yeah, sixties or seventies. He and he also had a uh, one of his, one of those eighteen kids also married a younger woman. John Tyler, despite having been born in seventeen ninety, has one living grandchild. I did know this. Even still living? Yes, there were two as early as the pandemic. Right, and then one of them made headlines by. Dying in 2020, not of COVID, I believe, but of being extremely old. One That's what the birth certificate said. Grandchild. John Tyler has a grandchild. Harrison Ruffin Tyler is in a Virginia nursing home, and I don't think he's super aware that he's in a Virginia nursing home, yeah, um, Right. but he is a grandchild of a U.S. president born in 1790. Wow. Um, you know, uh, what is that, 150 years after his grandparents enslaved people were freed. Isn't that incredible? 
So that's what uh, that's what happens when you when you have a meet cute on nine eleven. Is you produce another one hundred and fifty years of of posterity? Can I redirect us just for a second to the obelisk? Yes. Tell me more about the obelisk. Well, uh, it opened and six different kinds of light came out. <laughs> no, and it spun around. You know, the, you know how there was a, a time when uh, Egyptian yes. uh, iconography was super popular in the West and Europe, especially in cemeteries. It was kind of a post-Napoleon yes. thing, I think. Yes, the key master told me all about it. <laughs> and that's why the Washington Monument is what it is. A lot of graves from that period look like little Washington monuments. We even have them here in in, uh, our own Lakeview Cemetery. The one on Capitol Hill, right? Yeah, some obelisks. You can definitely tell that's a a mid-19th century thing. But but so she went back and and built the obelisk for her father, or the obelisk uh, came with him? (laughs) (laughs) Is he in the obelisk? He is standing Standing up up? (laughs) inside the obelisk. No, he he just turned out to be uh, one of the most... You know, wealthiest, uh, prestigious D.C. lawyer, New York and D.C. lawyer, from one of the great old families of the Northeast. And by the time he was buried, I mean, if the monument was added then, his daughter would not have been first lady. But if the monument even came six months later, his daughter would have been the sitting first lady of the United States of America. Yes. So um, I think there's a reason why he's the biggest name in the cemetery. He was the guy where if he hadn't taken a thousand ton piece of iron to the head, uh, John Tyler would not have had 10 more kids. Well, and also they owned that giant island right off the coast there. That's the consolation prize. Either (laughs) you die with a piece of iron to the head or you live long enough to see yourself own the biggest privately owned island in America. And that concludes the Princeton Incident. The Princeton Incident. Princeton Incident. Entry 987.RU0310. Certificate number 52488 in the omnibus. Futurelings, uh, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are archived at, at Omnibus Project. Our handles were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. I wish I were still on Twitter because I would be tweeting about David Copperfield every darn day. There should be a social media platform just for uh, Dickens tweets. Yes, uh, I bet there are a heap. lot. I'm going to go to Heap. Uh-huh. Uriahheap.com? I'm, I'm sending out some of my heaps. Uriahheap.org? Hashtag Heap. Uh, you, you can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. You can hang out with other Futurelings on uh, the Futurelings' various fan sites. Discords and discourses alike. You can mail us things. If you have a set of John Tyler's pistols... Matching ivory-handled pistols. ...that you believe are more authentically John Tyler's than Maria Semple's... If you have reason to know that Where'd You Go Bernadette author Maria Semple has a pair of counterfeit pistols, we would like the real ones. Send them to P.O. Box. Because we want to do some crimes and frame her. Oh, I know. Do some crimes and frame John Tyler's grandson. He has a pretty good alibi. He's in a nursing home, but at night. His alibi is he's not eaten solid food since the uh, yeah. first Bush administration. He sneaks out, puts on a costume. Cat burglar. People think he's old. He's a cat burglar. P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Usually Ken brings a box of mail, but this time he... he uh, I can open mail. No, no, no. Don't don't bother. I've got this right here. Do you want me to do oh, it on the next show? Yeah, well, no. Do it now. What well, is it? What do we got? I don't know. It's from Jennifer. Hi, Jennifer. 
Oh, this is tricky. There's an envelope that says Ken, it's tricky, tricky, and then it says tricky, Hi, John. Tricky. Oh boy. I, I don't know. Does that mean it's not to you or it is no, to you? No, it's not to me. It's to Ken. It's cheese puns. It says you're one of the Gouda ones, and then the the other cheese, which is neither a cheddar nor a Gouda, says you you cheddar believe it. Hmm. It looks to me like there's one of them is a Gouda, and then the other one is just a, a brie or a camembert. It's a brie, yeah. It's a little confusing. Shouldn't it be you better brie leave it? There you go. I've got you should notes. be you should be making greeting cards with cheese puns. Oh, Jennifer is a frequent correspondent. She's the one who made the uh, the crocheted toilet paper dolls, oh, baby Yodas, and the Lego minifigure head. I still have all of those. I have things. all of those things too. Uh, I was looking at one of them yesterday. And confusingly, she sent us three $2 bills and a Pueblo, Colorado consumer information catalog from spring 1989. Very nice. You know, sending us three $2 bills is like going to dim sum where there are three shumai. I hate when any appetizer plate has three of the (laughs) items. What are you talking about? There are not three. How are we going to split these bow? You can count how many of us are at the table. Here, I'm going to list some of these uh, publications from Pueblo, Colorado, and you tell me if if you want it or not. Okay. Would you like... um, the nutritional gender gap at the dinner table. How men and women differ in nutritional needs. I believe I would read that. Facing surgery? Why not get a second opinion? Uh, no. The colon. Sure. While this part of the body is not generally discussed, it performs important functions. Look, we all know. We talk about it all the time here on the show. Yeah, we're 50-year-old men. Removal of radon from household water. You can't afford not to get that one. It's only 50 cents. I guess so. Why is Pueblo, Colorado the place again? We should do an omnibus on that. We have talked about this before, and I think we will do an, an omnibus on yeah. Pueblo, Colorado. Although anybody younger than us, has, it's not an iconic thing. It used to be a thing. TV like so much of what we talk about, it used to be a thing. Shall you and I each keep a Thomas Jefferson uh, $2 bill, speaking of enslaved people, and then send one to uh, Mark Miles? Oh, good idea. Or what if I give you two, I keep one, and I keep the consumer information catalog? Okay. I, right. drive, I drive a hard bargain. Mark Miles is listening now to the negotiation that ended with him not getting a $2 bill. <laughs> Sorry, Mark Miles. You can Better invo- luck next time. You can invoice us. <laughs> um, the other thing that I normally say here in the outro is please support the show. In this case, we got uh, $6 and a, and, a, and a catalog. Send us weird denominations of bills or... Um, or support the show directly at patreon.com slash omnibus project listeners from our vantage point in your distant past we have no idea how long our civilization survived we have no idea there what other romantic ways that future presidents met their first ladies do you think what are the chances in this universe or any other that you and i die as a result of a cannon explosion it seems a little like what are, are we touring a uh, a recreation of the golden hind like what what is the where would let's say let's say an infinite number of multiverses? Well, you're King Neptune, right? Let's say you've been invited to some kind of pirate mar- uh, nautical themed festivity. But I'm saying you and I both killed in a single cannon explosion. Well, that's more likely. It's way more likely than you and I being killed in two separate cannon explosions. <laughs> true, right? True, true. We would go to a thing. Maybe I would be King Neptune. I'd invite you along. If you and I do die in a massive cannon explosion, I just hope that there's some other horny politician nearby who is able to carry a swooning damsel away and uh, and seal the deal. Maybe there's a there's an alternate universe where you are killed in a cannon explosion and I'm the horny politician that carries away a damsel. That's what you want. Everybody gets what they want. 
I get to die in glory. <laughs> you get a damsel, a swooning damsel. Uh, we hope and pray that unlike the Princeton incident, uh, the catastrophe that ends all life on Earth may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if Providence allows, if we dodge all the cannons, we will be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.